Janelle Prison, your host of All About Supporting Philanthropy, a podcast where we get to drill down into what Advancement Services is and why it's so important for philanthropy. Today we're talking about which came first, data or the decision, with Mark Walcott, Executive Director of Advancement Systems at the University of Houston. Not only is Mark an active volunteer, but he also sits on the board of AASP. All right, Mark, let's jump right into it. Which came first, the data or the decision? You know, I think that's a great question. And like anything, it depends, you know, especially considering the type of question you're asking, especially when we're considering if this is a thing that's been done before or whether you are living on the bleeding edge of innovation to which no data exists to even help you inform your decision. So when it comes to what came first, the data decision, like any good question, it depends. So what does it depend on then? In today's world, I think what we're seeing is how important it is to develop data sets that are representative of more than just the perspective of an individual doing a project. We're seeing a lot now and hearing a lot about the bias that's introduced in data sets and how that influences things like machine learning and how they identify things. So a lot more care has to go into how we construct our data sets. But it's also important to know that developers who are creating these programs aren't the ones generating the data sets. I think that's often a misconception. And the people generating the data sets are doing the best that they can. So there, there is likely to be a whole science evolving around generating good holistic data sets that eliminate as much of the bias as possible. When it comes again to that question of what it depends on, it's heavily influenced by what may have already been done. And more importantly, where it is you're trying to go. You know, it's, it's reflecting on this as I answer this question. You know, in short, I believe that the project, the, the question, um, location, all has to do with where that data come, comes from and how you go about constructing it, especially when you consider the geographical, cultural, and situational components that will go into any project. You mentioned that people collecting the data may not always be the same as the people who are considering or analyzing the data. Can you speak to how important it is for those looking at the data and setting up things uh, like machine learning or for developers to understand what that data means and where it comes from? Yeah, and and let me expand that a little bit to say that it is incredibly important that the teams that are around these projects are representative of the, I guess, the, the parties of interest for that particular project. Yeah, the developer is constructing the code and, you know, perhaps there was another team that was organizing the data. But when it comes to analyzing the output of that software, the output of that project, there should be representation of the organization as a whole. So if we're talking about advancement, 
it's not just gift processing, it's not just um, the directors of development, but it could be somewhat, it could be faculty, it could be staff, it could be gift processing, development, research, but having a broad perspective and a slice of the different people at the organization who are able to look at the results and the processing and see if it all makes sense because everyone's looking at it from a different lens and that's what's so important to have a collective a cross-section of the organization looking at these things because everybody does have a bias and i just and when we recognize that bias it's easier to identify the mechanisms to offset it and i think one of the easiest ways to do that is having that cross-section that diversity of people at the table who are looking at the outcomes. That makes sense. Thinking more or deeper about this data or decision and, and what's coming first, you've said it depends, but one of the things that is running through my mind is that it also depends on what type of decision and what type of data, because some things fall sequentially in one order, whereas other things might fall in the opposite order. Um, can you give any examples about scenarios where we would want to see data before a decision and, you know, vice versa, where we don't get the data until after a decision is made? The easy one where the decision should be influenced by the data or at least heavily guided or things where people's lives are at stake. Um, financial decisions, I think there's enough of a framework around those two particular industries where we sincerely are looking for these decisions and conclusions to be supported by data because livelihoods are at stake, uh, people's lives could be at stake. So I think those are some pretty easy examples to look at where we are ensuring that we have solid data and we've analyzed it, we have maximized the observations and testing and so on and so forth to feel very confident to a very high degree that our conclusions are correct and as accurate as possible. In instances where we are dealing with things that are new, where we have no frame of reference in order to even begin to construct a holistic um, data set or a sample data set is at that, I believe that's where the decisions just ultimately come first because you are paving a new path. Innovation usually doesn't have a, a clear road. People who have a vision are creating that initial foray or that initial path, that initial framework for other people to follow. And it may not always be perfect, but that's an iterative component of what we do, how we live life. And I think that we have to, at that point, allow for a greater range of risk and understanding as we look at that. When I think about where the decision comes before the data, it's essentially in situations where there is no precedent for what's being done. And building that path to completing or achieving that vision requires a certain amount of industry situational awareness with, where you're doing your best. But the decisions are clearly coming, are coming first because there's no precedent 
or prior history or data sets that can capture everything that may come down the road. You can only anticipate so much. It sounds like what you're describing is actually kind of similar to an experiment where we don't know what's going to happen. We just have to roll with it, pick something, figure out what data we can collect from it after the fact, and then go from there. Because once we start paving that road, we're going to know what kind of things we need to look at. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, to, to kind of think about from a sports analogy, you, you lose a whole lot more than when you win. And through that kind of scientific method, through that repetitive iterative process, I think that's where you start to see the, the rules start to flesh out. Some of the, the parameters that are important start to flesh out. And it's absolutely like the scientific process that I think a lot of us grow up in school learning. Let's take another example of analysis paralysis. If we're saying that if data exists and we're using the data to form decisions or make decisions uh, in cases where we're not paving a new road or forging a new path, uh, what happens when you've got so much data and, and some of us might be inclined to continue to collect it and, and observe it and watch it more and more and more and never make a decision because we're always waiting for the perfect answer. How would you suggest uh, getting around that or taking that into consideration when trying to make decisions based on data? It's important to recognize whether you're working in a team or as an individual that more data isn't going to provide you a better decision. At the point where you feel you're repeating yourself or you're looking at the same data over and over or you're not uncovering any new discoveries or insights, chances are you've not only reached that threshold, but surpassed it. And at that point, you have to take stock in where you're at, start sussing out the conclusions and moving forward to the actual testing. Because gathering the data doesn't mean you've actually done any testing. So good conclusions come about from testing, analysis and verification. So to move through that spectrum and through those states require that at some point you say enough's enough we're going to go and then if there are errors we can come back and iterate through this whole thing again so i could talk data with you all day but let's put this into a real world example what is an example of something in advancement services where we could fall victim to this analysis paralysis. Can you uh, give us a fictitious representation of what that might look like and, and when you would know that it's time to make a decision? The easiest answer that comes to mind is when organizations begin developing their own scoring systems or affinity scores in gauging some type of strength of relationship between an alumni donor and or friend to the institution or organization. There is so much that could be absorbed into that scoring system, but it's easy to throw the whole kitchen sink in there. And then when you start seeing the effects that one variable has upon the greater score, you can start taking things away. But initially, 
it could be very difficult for people to understand that we don't need 16 different measures of fundraising. You know, perhaps just looking at how much they give and how often they give is a, it's sufficient. And it's also important to be very familiar with your own data, you know, to understand that, you know what, we don't have sufficient data to support this quadrant. Maybe we just need to start collecting it. So let's just set that, set that aside for now and work with what we have, identify the core domains of what we're able to measure, and then really make sure that we're not throwing too much of the same thing into the scoring system where it just becomes almost indecipherable, where the output no longer makes sense or doesn't reflect what we're trying to do. And um, I think that that's a real world example of when it can be very difficult initially to decide how much you're going to put in, what you're going to put in, and realizing that for most institutions, they don't have everything they want and understanding that and just setting that for future a future group or a future project to address thank you for walking me through that aasp provides a plethora of excellent resources for members on both the aasp website and our online community aasp connect Read through an abundance of discussions and takeaways in existing forums on AASP Connect or create your own post and ask your own question. You can also find examples of affinity scoring, but it's best practice to create your own. The AASP website has an exceptional library of best practices, including a best practice for developing engagement scores. Another question I have regarding examples here is, Let's go back for a moment to when the decision comes before the data. We know that if we're, you know, starting off a new territory, that it's very likely that decision comes before the data. But in reality, that happens in, in other instances as well when maybe it shouldn't. Uh, can you give me an example of some time when a decision comes before the data and it shouldn't have? I'm going to kind of encapsulate these situations in regards to time. So there, there are instances where we just don't have enough time to gather the data and go through the process that is recommended. So whether you're looking at a best practice and they suggest stepping through 13 different steps in a two-year process and you have one month and maybe one person, chances are you're just going to do what you have to do you're going to gather the data that you can, you're going to give it your best effort, but it may not be the best way, or you may not have the time or resources or finances to execute the project in what I would call the best practice way. So that in some cases is where the decision just comes in. Hey, we are just going to look at this model we don't necessarily know whether it's the right model for us, but it works for everybody else. So the decision is to go here and it may lack, we, it may lack all the components or we may not have all the data necessary just to support that decision, but that's what it's going to be. Sometimes you just don't have the time to, to make the, the data driven decision. Also, I, I think some of this could be a, a maturity and a mature, uh, whether that's a maturity in modeling, whether it's a maturity in organization, there are times where 
there is no, again, no precedent. There is, there's nothing that has been done before in your particular area that you can reference. Um, I think advancement is a perfect example of this because advancement and alumni relations, I'm just gonna kind of talk about those two things holistically. That, that is something that's still emerging in other parts of the world. And when that happens, the best practices here may not function at all in other areas or in other countries because the cultural, regional differences don't align. So in that instance, when we look at what it takes to make it through a campaign, when we look at the, the campaign pyramid, maybe that's gonna be completely flipped in another part of the world just because of the cultural norms that may exist. So in that instance, you just can't take the data that we've generated here and use that to predict or, or use as a, a barometer there. They'll just have to learn and develop their own best practices and just make decisions that we are gonna go through a campaign. And in this campaign, we have no precedent for a feasibility study. A feasibility study as it currently exists, those methods are great for North America, but they don't align well with where um, we may be in the world. So I think that's a good example of how the decision is going to yield the future data opportunities and best practices that can then start generating data sets that can be used in the future by people in that region for more accurate predictions and more accurate and better holistic decisions. I think it's important to note too that, especially in these instances where time is of the essence and you have to jump in with something, that doesn't mean that it's set in stone. If you start a report or a study or you make a decision based on what you have at the time, in many cases, things can be modified as you go. I love where you went with that because one of the things, I, I literally a colleague of mine, Shamari White, would tell you progress over perfection. At some point, you have to have some progress, again, to reach your vision, to even consider perfection. So you're correct. Things may not go well the first time. Things may not go well the second time. But you're still iterating through learning, honing, developing, maturing, and eventually reaching this point where you have hit your vision and perhaps that next big vision is going to provide an even better data set, an even better set of practices and really afford um, the opportunity to put the data prior to the decision. But you're always gonna have trailblazers who are gonna be creating the data as they move forward in their, in their project and, and uh, vision. So as long as we revisit what we have come from and where we are going, uh, will that always be okay? Because it seems like there's never enough time. Or can we possibly run into instances where what we are doing is not okay? Um, maybe it's inviting bias or other ethical concerns. Um, what are the kinds of things that you think we might need to watch out for if we're kind of making things up as we go? I think many organizations, industries have 
um, guiding principles and ethics that people can use in order to inform the decision making as they're executing these projects where there's no data available. So that's basically I'm relying on an individual's ethics and morals to ensure that they're acting in the best interests of the people that may be affected or, or using this data or the outcome of this project for their own use. What would you suggest that we need to be careful of? Uh, sure, we have these guiding principles and ethics from our organizations, the morals that are instilled in us as we grow up, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything uh, we need to take into consideration is obvious front and center. Uh, like you mentioned, bias in data uh, earlier. How can we be careful to make sure that this bias uh, or unconscious bias doesn't raise concerns while we're working with our data? Every situation may have their own set of circumstances to consider. My overall recommendation when trying to handle situations of mitigating bias is ensuring that it's just more than one person at the table helping you along this process looking at your organization, looking at the recipients, looking at the users of this product if they exist, and bringing someone, a representative from each one of those groups at the table to look at how you're going about resolving this issue. You know, whether it's a focus group, whether it's a committee, whether it is a task force, some group, that is more than just a singular unit per se, and allowing them to freely analyze, provide feedback to, the, to the, whoever's making it, I think that's really the best way to, to help eliminate the bias that could be introduced, because there's always gonna be bias, but just making sure that we're trying to mitigate that to the, to the best possible extent can you elaborate a little bit just about what bias is in data? So when I talk about bias, what I'm talking about is the implicit bias, which is the attitudes or stereotypes that influence our understanding, our actions, the perspective that we have. And it's not something we consciously do. It's not something we set out to do. It's, it's these mental programs that work in the background that help us shape the interpretation of data or our surroundings. So when we unconsciously choose A over B, the reasoning behind that may not always be evident, but there are reasons for it. And if you have someone else who would choose B over A, it's important to maybe bring those two groups together and discuss how they arrived at that decision. Because in that discussion, the bias, the implicit biases, the rules, reasoning, and parameters people use start to come out a bit. And the more people you bring to the table, and again, not too many where a decision becomes impossible, but enough sampling where you, you can at least feel comfortable that you've brought in as much perspective as possible helps eliminate or address all those biases so that the end product may be C. Maybe we don't look at A and B and all, at all, but now we look at C, which is a better decision for the overall group rather than benefiting just one group or 
or leaning to, towards one type of decision over another. A great example of implicit bias would be if we were to do a survey of improve, what would make our institution better? What would make our organization better? And from a higher education perspective, we have a law school, a medical school, and an engineering school. And the question was posed, how can we, what type of alumni events would you love to see? Imagine we only took responses from the law school. Would that be indicative of the, the medical school and engineering school of what their responses would be? Probably not. You know, that's some bias that could exist in a data set if we only focused on one group in that example. What would be best is if we just asked, you know, maybe 20 people from each college and looking at that and then having a holistic view of some of the things that matter to all those different um, stakeholders. And then, of course, seeing what's feasible with the people who actually have to implement it. But that would be a good example of trying to eliminate bias by increasing the population to be as diverse as possible. And since in our fictitious school, we only had three colleges, we, we sampled all three. Well, and that's not to say that the sampling of just the law school wouldn't be appropriate in a different scenario. So it's interesting, your example here, because if you want to know how the law school could improve, or if you're trying to bring in more law students, maybe you want to know just about that particular segment. But if you want to know about the entire school with all three colleges, then absolutely, you want to pull all three colleges. And that's a that's a great question because even if you're at a poll of the law school and let's just say you're focused on let's make the law school better what are some of the populations you think you would want to poll alumni current students and prospective students all three have such different perspectives of the law school based off what, how they're interfacing with that organization, that to be better overall, you would need to have that input from all your constituency groups. And not to say those are the only ones, but in this example, just to keep it simple, I, I kind of identified those three. But that, it could easily be that someone would say, let's just pull our alumni because they've been through the program, they know the process, but, if you're only polling your alumni, you may be missing out of, out of a lot of changes that may have happened recently that they didn't experience. You may be missing out on the current climate that current students are, are better equipped to respond to. And you may be missing the future, um, the components that future students are seeing as being valuable that you wouldn't know from current students or alumni because the current the prospective students are the ones that are looking for certain uh, for certain values. They're looking for certain things that may not necessarily come across from current or alumni. So again, having that broad analysis, making sure you're making your population as diverse as diverse as possible, is is very important to having a well crafted and informed um, data set or conclusion. 
You know, what I think I'm hearing across our entire conversation today is that the data versus the decision and which come first, it sounds like it's actually a cycle, much like chicken and egg, where chicken comes from egg, chicken lays egg, and you just keep going around and around and around. Because in order to pull that data for your college example, you first have to make that decision of what you're going to collect and from whom. You hit it. You hit it right on the head. It, in my world, I don't think there is a data first, decision first. It's a cycle. You know, you're going, your data leads you to a decision. Your decision leads you back to looking at your data. And it's this process that you engage in in order to come to the best solution possible. And when people talk about making a data-driven decision, I hope they're allowing their decision to be guided just, just as much by the intuition and experience and also the data, but they're willing to revisit the process over and over again. They're not just allowing that initial foray, that, that singular, I looked at my data, I made that decision to be the end all be all. It should always be a process of revisiting because your data is going to change. Your data is going to change for a number of reasons. So it has to be revisited. And if you're going to revisit your data, hopefully you're open to revisiting the conclusions that you may have drawn prior. So I do absolutely feel it's a cyclical process and that they work in tandem, not in isolation. So in the cycle, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, I, I wish I had a clever response to that. I guess the better question is, can one exist without the other? And I don't think it's possible. So one last serious question here. Say you have or you know of someone who's new to management or leadership, perhaps. Do you have any advice for them to help use data to build their confidence in their decision making? When we frame it in the context of management, I think the best managers are ones that can adapt to the situation and have a understanding of the, the, the influence of their intuition and experience along with the data. I think that good managers are able to find that balance between experience and data and decisions and use that to guide, to guide the organization or guide their unit appropriately. It's, um, there are times where you may, <laughs> I don't know, I, honestly, it's what's coming to mind is when you're learning to fly, I've heard when you're, you're, when you're learning to become a pilot, you're taught to trust your instruments because sometimes you're disoriented and the only thing that's keeping you alive are your instruments and relying on that as opposed to where you think you may be. So when you're trying to find the horizon, looking at your instruments because you could be pulling up into the ground when you think you're pulling up into the sky, I think a good manager knows when they need to trust the data and when they just need to trust their instincts. And navigating that, I think, takes time and experience. 
but most importantly, it's an openness to what may be required based off the situation at hand. That's a very insightful response. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Janelle. listening to All About Supporting Philanthropy, a podcast from the Association of Advancement Services Professionals. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us today, and special thanks to Dwight Dozier for providing our theme music and Meg Padavati for producing this show. Please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and visit us at advserv.org. Thanks again for listening. And that is probably the best response of you and all day. I like it. Right. Like by far. <laughs>